This is a recording of the session on arguing for autistic rights, the backlash against neurodiversity and how to overcome it at Ideas for Freedom 2019. You'll hear from three speakers, plus their responses to the discussion from the floor. Their speakers are Judy Singer, the author of Neurodiversity, the Birth of an Idea, Janine Booth from Workers' Liberty, an author of Autism in the Workplace, and Fergus Murray, the co-founder of the Autistic Mutual Aid Society. Um, welcome to Arguing for Autistic Rights, Backlash Against Neurodiversity and How to Overcome It, um, a session at Ideas for Freedom. We are, just to let you know, we're recording the speakers, but we won't be recording the audience um, for when questions or points are made in the middle. Um, so don't worry about that if you're shy. Um, we've got three uh, speakers who are introducing the discussion, um, Judy Singer, Fergus Murray and Janine Booth, who I'll tell you about in a minute. Um, they'll give uh, an introductions um, for about 10 minutes each, and then we'll have a discussion, free for all, raise questions, make points. Um, I'll try and manage the times that people speak so everyone, hopefully people, everyone can get um, a word in. I apologize if we run out of time. Um, two other things, um, if, Instead of applauding uh, by clapping, you can do sign language applause like this. Uh, that helps some people. Um, so please do it, because it's polite. So uh, without further waffling and ado, um, I'll kick us off with Judy, who um, is the author of Neurodiversity, The Birth of an Idea, uh, and who invented the term uh, neurodiversity. Um, so uh, welcome, Judy. Thank you. Ready to go? Yeah, please do. Well, so um, I just want to say how pleased I am to be in an audience where I can actually use the C word, by which I mean capitalism. I don't think I've ever had the courage to mention it in any other audience, um, yet I think it is terribly significant to some of the issues. Okay. So I've got 10 minutes, so it's going to be a really lightning quick um, run through. Um, I'll just tell you a little bit about me and my background, um, the origins of the idea, uh, what I think the historical significance of the idea is, um, a bit about what I think it should mean in plain English, because really it's a fancy word for um, a very simple idea. Um, I'm going to talk about the, um, so my next bit, I'll talk a little bit about the neuro wars and the conflicts. Are there any? I'm not so sure. And then I'll talk a little bit about opportunities and risks um, for us. Um, so about me, I've um, identified myself, this was 20 years ago, as being in the middle of three generations of women somewhere on the autistic spectrum. Um, meaning that I have some autistic traits, but some not, as they were defined at that time um, in the DSM-IV. Um, I don't identify as actually autistic um, because um, I think that it's too um, broad a statement, and I'll talk about that a bit more. Um, so the origin of the idea for me obviously came from the idea of biodiversity, um, which I got from the Green Movement, um, uh, biodiversity, I think, was first coined in the 80s. It was intended as a political thing, as a political concept. 
um, to argue the desirability of conservation and the desirability of maintaining diversity. The neurology, the neuro part of it came from the fact that, I, that we noticed back in the 90s that um, at that stage psychiatry was the leading discourse about um, explaining the behaviour of individuals um, and the psychiatrists were a sort of priesthood, or that's what we called them. They were starting to fall into disrepute. Um, uh, psychotherapy was becoming a joke. People were um, spending fortunes on it and not changing. Um, and particularly for autistic people, um, it was um, decades trying to figure out what your parents had done to you to make you the way you were. In my case, I was always trying to work out, why can't I make eye contact? I don't know how many years I spent in therapy about that. Um, so the new priesthood, the coming priesthood was um, the neuroscientists. Um, and so I thought what we can do with uh, that is put neuro together with diversity. And then um, we have a word that sounds terribly important um, and it piggybacks on the new rising authority of neuroscience. Um, at that time, um, that idea, the, neuro, the whole concept was two sentences in my thesis. I didn't even think twice about it. Honestly, I'm not quite sure I knew exactly how to use the word. Um, what I'm proud of in that thesis was that it was the first attempt at a sociological rather than a medical analysis of the rise of this new disability. And what interested me about it is that my mother had had autism or Asperger's syndrome, as we called it then, which I think it possibly should still be called that. I'll talk about that later. Um, and I knew that it was not a new thing. So I was intrigued, why has this thing become a disability all of a sudden when previously it was an eccentricity? Um, it was seen as an eccentricity. Um, am I speaking too fast or no? So, and you know, I knew, and I'd noticed that when I realized that we had a hereditary disability in the family rather than um, a psychological problem, um, I, um, oh, I can't remember. I'm really terribly sorry. I just um, get really easily distracted. Um, so, um, so I'll just move on from whatever I was trying to say. Um, I just want to say about that thesis that, that I wrote, that it's started off as a social constructionist theory, um, theory but thesis rather, and I really um, sat on the backs of, or what is it, stood on the shoulders of giants, um, and I learned so much from it, but ultimately I didn't feel it was a sufficient ex explanation, and that's part of some of the conflict now about um, whether it's uh, you know, extremes of social constructionism and um, a medical model still happening. But what I wanted was to take the best of all of them, and I thought medical model had something to contribute, but it was still not enough, and that's when I came up with the model of um, uh, the deaf people who identify not as a um, not as a disability, the deaf nation, but as a neurological minority, and I thought that's the missing ingredient. So that's how I thought of a neurodiversity movement. Um, I think um, 
part of the significance of the um, the idea of a neurodiversity movement was the swing from nature to nurture. When I was growing up, um, we, I mean, obviously there was some nuance in it, but basically we believed people were inherently good um, and anything that was wrong with them was society's fault or their parents' fault. If you wanted to fix the individual, you fixed society or you fixed um, um, their parents or there was, that was the kind of solution you had. Um, for the um, nature, when it swung towards nature, it was more like um, whatever flaws in the individuals were innate, and the only way to control that was social control. Um, and, um, and really, what was the solution to that? To cure the individual, or at the most extreme end, it was eugenics. And that was why um, the the gay movement, the feminist movement, all of us were really hostile to the, um, this notion of nature in, or inherent nature or essentialism as we um, thought of it. Um, for, for the significance of it to individuals, it was really, it was by saying that it's innate and not psychological or not a matter of your choice, it was saying you're not to blame. And I think for me, somewhere in there, I said, when I realised that I had this condition, for me, it was not to adopt a label, but simply to examine my life through a new lens of trying to work out, well, which part of it, from an ethical position, which part of my behaviour am I, um, can I be responsible for, and which part of my behaviour is not my fault? Um, and how can I work around that? Um, so what it means in plain English, well, it's the good old socialist dictum, really. Um, first of all, that everybody is different. Um, you wrote, well, forget the socialist for a moment, but everybody is different. Um, neurodiversity, diversity is a proper property of populations, not of um, individuals, so therefore you can't for me, this idea that you can talk about a neurodiverse individual um, um, really um, dilutes the idea and dilutes the power of the idea. Um, you can't, the, to say, um, to talk about a person with neurodiversity, again, um, doesn't make sense. An individual can't be, uh, can't have neurodiversity and makes it a synonym for disability. And by doing that, it will eventually um, inherit all the stigma all over again of disability. So that's why I wanted the idea of neurodiversity to be a, an umbrella movement, an umbrella concept um, to, again, to legitimise our claim to inclusion because of the importance of diversity. Um, neurodiversity is not about labelling anyone and it's not about good good or evil or inherently victim or inherently powerless or any of that. And in simple English, um, it's, well, the, the old socialist dictum, from each according to their ability to each according to their needs, um, not actually from Marx, but from an earlier French socialist whose name just escapes me for a second. Hmm? No? Louis? Anyway, we won't go there. I'll tell you later. 
it's in there somewhere. Um, so yeah, that's all it means. So how do you, but the question then is, well, how do you tell what somebody's abilities are and what someone's needs are? And I would want to argue that that is an art and that that requires the best of all of us that you know we can look at it scientifically we can look at people's stories and narratives we can look at literature and media but um it's it we're not going to live happily ever after just because we've got this new word um we still have to use our human faculties um or the best of our human faculties so there are rumors of neuro wars i've only seen it amongst extremists on Twitter. I don't know if there is any more of that. Perhaps some of the others who live in the UK, certainly none of that much in Australia at all. Um, it's um, the extremes, um, people who think want to make it all rainbows and, and butterflies and the angry brigade. Um, there's um, I have to be grateful to some of the people who've, who've really trolled me in really horrible ways on Twitter um, because they have um, defined the boundaries of the discourse, you know, so that I've actually had to think more deeply of, well, what do I really mean? Um, so I think the kind of the conflicts that there are, are, I think, caused by, and this is where I get controversial for some people, I think Asperger's, first of all, I'm not even sure that the, I, I don't, even back in the 90s we were saying, well, it's not really a spectrum, it's not really a unified thing, it's clusters of behaviours that create difficulties of communication or, um, or other symptoms that have all been lumped together as autism. So I think when the DSM-5 lumped Asperger's in with um, autism, it actually, um, well, it made me think of, um, well, when uh, British, ooh, British imperialists um, um, cobbled together imposed borders on all the uh, tribes of the Middle East, or when the Yugoslavs um, cobbled together um, the Balkan tribes and what it's leading to, well, it didn't turn out really well, did it, when some when an outside authority um, uh, tries to impose boundaries on us. So that is one of the reasons why we have this problem now. Uh, I think there's also a problem of the failure to acknowledge that the dark triad, psychology's dark triad, and um, I've been, I'm a bit responsible for this because I haven't talked about it a lot, but I used to talk about it 15 years, 10 years ago and I got attacked so badly I just decided to give the whole thing up. But the dark triad includes psychopathy, um, what's the others? Narcissism. Narcissism. Yeah, and those sorts of things are often actually, and there's even a tetrad, sadism, Machiavellianism. And um, well, it's highly praised in some people, isn't it? Our politicians, you know. I'm sure we can, I don't have to name them, you know who they are. Um, so finally, time to wrap up. So all I wanted to say was just um, the risks. Um, very quickly, um, governments fail. The risks are basically about capitalism. 
I've come here to find out whether market-led sort of initiatives, like all these startups that are starting to include people, are going to work. I don't know. Um, I'm interested in learning more about that. And I'm also the proliferation of, of symptoms where there's more and more subdivisions, which is probably why I think um, I like the idea of neurodiversity, where everyone can say, you have to include us because we're important, but it's up to you to find out what it is about us that's difficult. And also, it's, there's some responsibility on us too, like neurodiversity shouldn't mean never having to say you're sorry. Um, and finally, that's it, from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. And thanks, uh, Judy. And next, we'll hear from Fergus Murray, who's the co-founder of Autistic Mutual Aid Society in Edinburgh. Uh, Fergus, I'll give you 10 minutes. I'll let you know when you've got five left. So I wanted to talk a bit about the relationship between neurodiversity and disability and how I understand that. Uh, because one of the most common accusations made by critics of neurodiversity, or those who claim to be critics of neurodiversity, is that we discount autism as a disability and ignore the problems of severely autistic people, which is a bit odd when many of the most prominent neurodiversity advocates qualify as severely, severely autistic themselves, whatever that means. And most absolutely see it as part of the movement for disability rights. Um, Ari Lehman, for example, who was head of the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network for a long time, has recently completed a, a history of the disability rights movement in the USA from the Civil, right, Civil War to the present. Um, Neurotribes, by far the best known book about neurodiversity, sorry Judy, um, is absolutely clear on the status of autism as a disability. Supposed critics of neurodiversity have a consistent habit of laying into straw men which has been aided in recent years by a lot of very sloppy journalism. Um, to be fair, though, there are people who don't see their autism as a disability. And in some cases, this is because, like so many people, they see disability as automatically a bad thing. And in accepting their autism as a part of who they are, with advantages and disadvantages, they reject the idea that it's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and for them, that means rejecting the label of disability. This is understandable but it's a mistake. Many disabilities have advantages, and autism is not unique in having a culture associated with it and a community where many find acceptance that has eluded them in wider society. In any case, I have never known anyone to seriously argue that autism is never a disability. People rejecting the label of disability for themselves doesn't mean that anyone else's disability status is threatened, necessarily. The question of whether autism is always a disability is a lot more subtle. Um, there's no one universally agreed definition of, of disability. In the UK, the Equality Act, which uses similar language to the World Health Organization, says you're disabled if you have a physical or mental impairment that has a substantial and long-term negative effect on your ability to do normal daily activities. I don't know about any of you, but I have no idea what normal daily activities are supposed to be. Maybe that's just my autism, but uh, the idea is just baffling to me. The assumption that disability can only result from impairments is similarly problematic, although it is standard in disability studies to talk about impairments. Um, but what if the differences that have a negative effect on your ability to do normal daily activities uh, also have substantial advantages? Where disability is not inherently negative, 
impairment really is. Uh, diminishment or loss of function or ability. To impair is usually to make worse, less valuable or weaker, to lessen injuriously, to damage, injure. So it's no wonder that a lot of people reject the idea that they're impaired. It's a natural thing to push back against, especially if, for example, the things which are being claimed as impairments clearly have positive aspects for you. For example, the sensory processing difficulties in autism are clearly very closely associated with our intense experiences of very pleasurable sensory stimulation. Um, where autism is usually described in the literature in terms of deficits, in social imagination, communication and flexible thinking, most autistic people really don't think of it that way. The difficulty imagining what other people are thinking about largely comes about because we just think differently from other people. Um, communication difficulties come from the combination of that mismatch with the difficulty in processing sensory information coming from multiple channels. So if someone is trying to communicate with body language and making eye contact and wanting us to follow the words that are coming out of their mouth and at the same time keep in mind all of this social context, that can just be too much. Um, and what other people might see as inflexible thinking or restricted interests could be seen as just being exceptionally determined and passionate. So whether any of these can rightly be seen as impairments very much depends on the context. Um, the problems with the Equality Act definition go even deeper than that. The ways that disabled people are discriminated against, including, but not limited to autistic people, often have nothing to do with whether an impairment is having a substantial negative effect on our ability to do normal daily activities. It's just not related. Someone with a prosthetic limb might be discriminated against because people just find it creepy. Uh, even if it's perfectly functional and doesn't interfere with their ability to do anything at all. People with cere cerebral palsy are often discriminated against because their movement difficulties are just assumed to indicate mental incapacity, uh, and so on. Autistic people are discriminated against in very similar ways, and sometimes, but not always, the only thing getting in the way of our performing day-to-day -day activities is other people's attitudes. There's also a circularity here about reasonable adjustments where um, under the definition in the Equality Act, the reasonable adjustments which disabled people are supposedly legally entitled to should be allowing us to perform daily activities, right? They, they're there to allow us to take part in society and do all the things that other people do, but as soon as they work, and we're actually able to participate in society and do these normal daily activities, whatever they might be, we're not disabled anymore, according to the law. It just, it, it's pulled away. So, as things stand, autistic people are weakly protected by disability law. Um, but it's not just us. It's a, a problem with the way that the laws are framed more generally. So... Perhaps Janine will pick up this, this theme of what is the best thing to do about protecting autistic and other neurodivergent people from discrimination. Um, there's a similar issue with autism in diagnostic manu manuals. So in DSM, for example, 
Autism is only supposed to be diagnosed if, if its symptoms limit or impair everyday functioning. So if you're functioning just fine, then you can be denied a, a diagnosis of autism. They, you know, you go to a psychiatrist or another specialist and they'll say, oh, but you're doing fine. Why would you even want a diagnosis? And then you go away and your life falls apart and you come back and say, hi, doctor, my life has fallen apart. I can't cope at all. And it's not that you're any more autistic afterwards, but now you qualify for a diagnosis because your symptoms or whatever you want to call them are limiting or impairing your everyday functioning. So there's this problem with the whole way that autism is framed as being a problem. And in particular, it's a problem with the medical establishments, which are currently in charge of gatekeeping autism diagnosis. But it is a broader problem, as I say, it's a problem in law as well. Um, while the neurodiversity perspective is absolutely compatible with seeing autism as a disability, it did originate with the ob observation that it's not necessarily a problem, I think it's fair to say. Um, it's not something that's wrong with a person. Uh, this is an idea that goes back even before the coining of the term. Uh, I remember my mum sitting there in the mid-90s working to demonstrate that autistic traits like heightened senses, attention to detail and hypervigilance could have been extremely valuable in hunter-gatherer societies, for example, even if they make it much harder to fit in in a modern capitalist economy. Which traits are valued depends profoundly on how a society is set up. Even so-called severely autistic people might make extremely valuable contributions in a community which doesn't place a high premium on conformity and which is able to make use of their particular skills and perspectives on the world. The assumption that any deviation from the cognitive norm or pathological is pervasive. So autism researchers who probably believe that they're being scientifically objective will, for example, find that autistic people are less susceptible to some logical fallacy and put that down to deficits in contextual processing, um, being less prone to letting other people influence your decisions um, is a specific deficit in taking, account, taking into account their reputation. Of course it is. Everything about autism must be a deficit, right? Uh, so the point of neurodiversity is to push back against that. It's not deficits, it's differences. But that doesn't mean they're not problems. Autistic people are usually disabled in the context of this society. And there are lots of things which society could be different, doing differently to allow us to thrive. Let's hope that the world at large can get its act together, because at the moment, we are squandering the talents and perspectives of people who don't think the same as everybody else. And not just that, we're devaluing them as human beings. Thank you. Um, thanks, Fergus. Uh, that was in impressively exactly 10 minutes. So <laughs> congratulations, that's excellent timekeeping. Um, uh, Janine is our final introductory speaker. Uh, Janine Booth is uh, an RMT activist, a uh, member of Works Liberty, and the author of Autism Equality in the Workplace, which is one of the books you can read, uh, buy, and read today. Uh, so, um, yeah, Janine, um, let me.
just grab the mic and uh, let you take it away. Cool. Thank you very much. Um, so I want to put the case that uh, the concept of neurodiversity, as coined 20 years ago, has brought us a great kind of enlightenment and um, it's brought us a great enlightenment and a progressive new approach. But to tell you a bit about the backlash that has grown up against it quite recently, um, I think that backlash is mostly reactionary. Um, I think it tends to, um, what I'd like to say misunderstand, but I think that's overly generous. I think misrepresent is probably more accurate um, what neurodiversity advocates actually argue. Um, but I do think it's helped um, along its way by some flaws in the way the neurodiversity movement or some members of it present our argument at times. Um, but that's just, that's just by way of saying, well, here's how we can kind of, how our team can play better rather than saying, um, you know, we're halfway to being on the other side, we're not. Okay, so um, what I'm going to conclude is an argument that an effective neurodiversity approach is one that locates neurodiversity in social structures in our society. So when the neurodiversity approach started to gain ground um, over the last two decades, the great thing that it's done is that it's, it has superseded um, the more pathological, disabling view of autistic people that existed previously, um, and replaced it with a far more empowering one. It identifies humanity as naturally neurologically diverse and that there are good reasons why, neuro, the, why neurodivergent conditions have remained in the human gene pool. Um, it's allowed us pr to progress from awareness towards acceptance, from the idea of pity to the idea of rights and equality. And it's, allowed us, it's helped us to understand that social structures and environments disable autistic and other neurodivergent people and therefore uh, kind of shape our politics around demands for rights and equality rather than for kind of begging for a cure. It's enabled us to highlight the positive aspects of various neurodivergent conditions alongside any deficits. And it's allowed us to draw on the experience of movements for the recognition of other diversities, such as sexual diversity, uh, ethnic diversity, etc. Um, one thing that I need to emphasise is that, although you hear a word, the word, you know, a fair bit, if you hang around certain circles, right, and it has got quite a bit of support, neurodiversity has not become the dominant ideolo ideology of society. Okay. There's been a bit of a trend recently to blame it for everything. So there was a kind of, there was an article recently that Nick Cohen wrote, um, which essentially blamed the neurodiversity approach for schools excluding um, learning disabled pupils. Right? As though the neurodiversity movement runs the country. Right? <laughs> we don't run the country. It, it's, a radical, it's still a fringe, radical, but I think liberatory um, approach and, and movement. Um, the other thing you'll find in that is that you will find kind of ruling parts of society like employers grasping the idea of neurodiversity and saying how much they support it, right? But it's just, in, in, nine times out of ten, it's BS, right? They say it, they tick it, they use it to claim a kite mark, right? But they don't actually respect the neurodiversity of their workforce at all. Or if they do, it's because they've suddenly decided that autistic people are really easy to exploit because they don't think we'll spend time sitting around the office nattering, um, but instead we'll be more productive. But that is not the neurodiversity movement.
Okay? But there are a few points I would like to make about neurodiversity and how we present it. The first of all, first of all is that there's some people in some ways have got a little bit carried away with the phrase and it's like uh, people stop saying autistic and just say neurodiversity. And there is, and sometimes that obscures the needs of the individual neurodivergent conditions. Um, so much in the same way as uh, if you only ever talk about anti-racism and never talk about Islamophobia and never talk about anti-Semitism, right, you're going to miss the specifics of those experiences. Then if you only ever talk about neurodiversity, not about ADHD, not about dyspraxia, not about autism, etc., then you're going to miss the specifics of, of, of those experiences. So. Uh, neurodiversity is not a condition, okay? It's, it's an approach, it's a way of understanding things. So let's lose, use that term when it's appropriate and use other terms when they're appropriate. So on the issue of disability or difference, okay, that, that Fergus has already touched on, I think this is very important. It's important to note that our society defines neurodivergent conditions almost entirely negatively. Most of them have the, have the three-letter term dis in their title, whether it's DYS or DIS, dyslexia, dyspraxia, autism spectrum, disorder, etc. Okay? Now, there's a growing... Like everyone, what everyone knows about dyslexia is that dyslexic people struggle with spelling. Okay? What, less, what fewer people know about dyslexia is there is a growing body of evidence that dyslexic people have an enhanced ability at spatial reasoning. Okay? And yet we still call it dyslexia. We don't call it enhanced spatial reasoning syndrome. Okay? Our society is still defining it by deficits. Um, but as Fergus has already argued, quite rightly, I think, um, a neurodivergent condition isn't necessarily impairment. Deficits may be matched by strengths. But it is the case that some people's neurodivergence, some people's autism is an impairment, and we probably could do with a bit more recognition that. I think we would benefit from developing a social model of neurodiversity which explains that neurodivergent people, autistic or otherwise, are disabled by society. Some, of a, some people disabled entirely by society, some disabled by society in conjunction with, uh, with, with impairments. And I should uh, just qualify something that Fergus said actually when he said the Equality Act definition of um, disabilities is quite similar to the UN definition. It's actually different in a really, really crucial way. Is that the, the UK Equality Act says a disabled person has a, an impairment which has a substantial long-term negative impact on your ability to carry out day-to-day -day activities. The UN definition inserted in there says an impairment which, in interaction with various in, in barriers in, in their environment. We totally have different documents. Sorry? I, I was referring to the WHO definition. Oh, right, okay. So, yeah. Consider yourself not corrected then. But the, the, the point's quite important that the U United Nations definition is, is more social model, okay? Because it says that the difficulties arise in the interaction between your condition and the environment in which you, in which you live. Um, okay, one of the main criticisms from this, from this backlash, um, and the backlash is mainly online, and it's mainly from people who want uh, to cure autism, or who want to market a product, or who simply misrepresent what neurodiversity is, is one of the main criticisms they make is that neurodiversity approach ignores the more severely um, affected people. And they, they use the term severe autism, which I think is problematic, but I won't go into that now. Um, I think there is a genuine issue here, but I think it's not fair to blame the neurodiversity approach for it. I think there is an imbalance of uh, voices between more or less independent autistic people 
but actually the main context of that is that autistic people in general are underheard in society that our voices aren't heard in decision making etc you hear a lot more uh, people talking about us than ourselves talking about ourselves and it is true um, that, I mean, Fergus already mentioned that a lot of neurodiversity ab advocates are people who qualify as uh, severely autistic, but even those who don't are often are actually the most passionate campaigners that I've met for people who are more severely disabled, and a lot of them are parents um, of kids who are more severely disabled. On the DSM-5 thing about um, incorporating Asperger's under autism. I can see positive and negative um, impacts and arguments for that, but I think I'm pretty sure actually that I disagree with uh, Judy. I, I, I don't think it is like raising borders between countries. I think it's more like removing them, but it is still a problem in the sense that it's been done from outside, as you say, like an imperialist carve-up, but I wouldn't be in favour of campaigning to reverse that change and reinstating Asperger's. Um, into the DSM. I also think we need to recognise that brain science is still at a very early level, right? And when we're sitting here having this meeting in five years, ten years' time, I think it's quite possibly possible that not only will the terminology, but even the categories being referred to will have changed a lot. So I don't see much point in digging in about certain uh, categories or terminologies now. Another big criticism the neurodiversity movement gets is about parent bashing. Apparently we parent bash. And I want to assert that there are actually good reasons to criticise aspects of parenting. On the one extreme, you have those parents who think that making their children drink bleach is a good way to cure their autism. Um, but there are also more mainstream parenting styles that warrant criticism. The common view that having an autistic child is a tragedy, that you need to fix or normalise them. And I think it's legitimate for people to, uh, to criticise that. I think it's legitimate for people to criticise parents who do things like, for example, publicly shame their autistic children by posting videos of them having meltdowns on social media. Um, however, what we need to stop and think about is this, right, is that parents, other than the ones with the, you know, the bleach and the exorcism and stuff, right, in generally, parents don't do this because they're bad people, right, it's because they, 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 they parent in a society which gives them no support, right, which treats parenting as an essentially private activity, and because it tells them that, it's, that, that, that they must normalise their children because, you know. And also in a society in which parenting is very, very difficult. Very, very difficult. And with a child who has particular needs, even more difficult. And, um, and that, that parenting in that context is part of what capitalism is. It keeps the reproduction in the private sphere while production is done in the public sphere. So... I'm just going to spend one minute concluding by saying um, that we need to understand neurodiversity in the context of the society in which people live. People are part of the physical, natural environment around ourselves. We help to shape that environment. We both exist in our environment and in interaction with our environment. We form social structures um, which historically have become divided into classes. And we need to understand neurodiversity in that context. And that's what's known as a materialist. Um, understanding. So I think I would advocate that we develop a materialist understanding of neurodiversity, a social model of diverse, neurodiversity, rather than one that's based on pathology and identity, or, or, or just identity, and that, that what that would look like in practice is, is developing concrete political economic demands to change society to one in which we can uh, exist independently and on
We run Ideas for Freedom every year. For more talks and discussions, come and join our now legendary annual socialist summer getaway above Hebden Bridge in West Yorkshire on the 8th to the 11th of August. This will be a long weekend of music, campfires, food, drink and socialist discussions, workshops, tree climbing and messing about in the great outdoors. Open to all. More information and tickets from £20, including food, at workersliberty.org forward slash camp. <laughs>